This podcast is sponsored by Google Search. It's where your customers find out what matters to them and where you can find out what matters to your business. To learn more, visit g.co slash think slash search smarter. That's g.co slash think slash search smarter. Hello and welcome to Marketing That Matters, a podcast series from Marketing Week and eConsultancy, sponsored by Google. Over the coming weeks, we'll be looking under the bonnet of how brands are transforming their approach to digital marketing, covering customer experience, e-commerce, search, and much, much more. My name is Russell Parsons. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week, and I am your host. Our subject for this episode is Farfetch and its journey from early mover in a blossoming category to a public company in an increasingly crowded and competitive environment. How will it grow from here and how will its marketing proposition and experience it offers customers help? Just some of the questions we'll be discussing today and I have two key figures in its journey to help with that. I've got Chief Marketing Officer Gareth Jones and Senior Director for Customer Acquisition, Adam Cartledge. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Russell. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you both here. Now, uh, let me kick off with you, uh, Gareth, if I could. I think it's fair to say that Farfetch was an early innovator in the fashion e-commerce space and uh, indeed as a digital first fashion platform. We've seen a flood of activity in the space and lots more entrants beefing up their online presence. Uh, How did your early mover advantage help you, in particular weathering the challenges of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic? So I think our early mover advantage has really been in gestation for the last 13 years since Jose set the business up back, um, as you called out, Russell, in 2008. So Farfetch is a business that exists for the love of fashion. And that's a very powerful emotional intent. And so what that means is that we're the mix of lots of things. So with a confluence of joy, for instance, so buying something in the luxury fashion category, something that's beautiful, crafted, um, has got longevity, got provenance, is, is a lovely thing. And we are also about history because we work and partner with a very big, broad repertoire of iconic brands and Maisons. And I think it's about technology. And we worked with an amazing agency back in the middle of 2020 called Anomaly. And they, if I can plagiarise with a little bit of dignity, something that they told us, they said that Farfetch is the sort of magic of the and. And by that, I mean that, you know, we're fashion and tech. We are art and science. We are culture and commerce. And increasingly, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about this, we're brand stories and storytelling as much as we are about performance. And so I think we weathered those challenges over the last 14 months as a consequence of that model, which hasn't changed. And I think one of the big things that we did do in March of last year, actually, is we supported boutiques. And so boutiques are often family, small-run businesses, but they're a very critical part of the fashion 
fragile at times ecosystem because small factories depend on small brands and small brands depend on boutiques and the new designers the sort of nascent designers depend on wholesale and selling their stock and their inventory through those boutiques so when those boutiques closed and footfall diminished to zero for many of them farfetch was the only place that they could sell through and so we completely re-engineered our business very quickly to showcase that boutique content, their edits, their inventory, um, through editorial, through different content production, through marketing campaigns, visual merchandising. The whole experience had those SMBs, I suppose, at the forefront. In the, in the background, we did principled things like lowered our fees, we helped out with stock distribution. We relaxed certain service level obligations. So I think all of that helped us through the last 14 months. From a marketing perspective, and I'll give Adam a cat in hell's chance of talking in a moment, but from a marketing perspective, we, we did maybe three or four things. We lent into automation and we worked very closely with Google to enable that. So that enabled us as... The globe sort of came in and out of lockdown, enabled us to very, very quickly pick up pockets of demand opportunity. And we could do that sort of algorithmically, I suppose. The other thing that we sort of thought a lot about was there's a book, I'm sure you've read it, Russell, um, How Brands Grow. And so what could we shout about over the last year that is very, very distinctively Farfetch. So what are the things that you only get on Farfetch? And um, those, that boutique edit, those cura that curated inventory is one thing, but we've also got um, a huge amount of choice. And um, we've worked with a lot of great partners over the last year to give exclusive content and exclusive product to our customers. So if any of you were to jump onto the website today, we've got a really fabulous partnership with Burberry. We've done similar things with Gucci, AZ Factory. And so we've sort of flowed into those types of things. And then just very, very quickly and finally, we've gone hotline and sinker into some of the thinking that Les Bonnet and Peter Field have been advocating for a long time. So Adam sums this up really, really elegantly when he says that when others have pulled back, we've pushed. And by that I mean, there's often a temptation in difficult times to sort of collapse your spend to lower funnel. We've, we've certainly done that, but we've complemented that with brand activity as well. And so this has been the first year that we've properly embraced the full funnel. And we've done that with a couple of big global brand campaigns that kicked off at the end of 2020 and started at the beginning of 2021. So I think maybe a long and possibly rambling response, Russell, but our success has been a combination of lots of things, including the stuff I've just spoken about. You say rambling, I say comprehensive. Thank you, Gareth. I think what that's done is set us up nicely to uh, dig in and unpack uh, quite a lot of that because it's all relevant, hyper-relevant to your journey, yes, over the last uh, year or so, but very much in terms of where you came from and where you're heading let me bring Adam uh, into the conversation, if I could. Gareth mentioned your embrace of Binet and Field, the long brand building married with the short-term performance 
bottom of the funnel stuff. Talk to me a little bit more about uh, what's changed and why. One of the things that Gareth spoke about there was the we're on a journey and there are trends that are present in the market. Just what we've experienced during COVID, there was a rapid acceleration quite dramatically of those trends. So there's a recent study with Bain's Alter uh, Gamma research, which looked at the size of the global luxury market. So back in 2019, the market globally was worth about 281 billion. Now, the interesting factor that's set behind that is though whilst 80% of consumers' decisions were influenced online, online sales only made about 12% of that market. You know, fast forward to 2020, the market reduced through to the factors we're aware of down to 217 billion, but online purchases still only represented about 23% of the market. So we could see the trends that were happening and what was transitioning into the market. And this is where we've been continuously working towards that. It's evident that there was a, a friction point between the consumer being influenced online and a sense of why they would buy online. And that first mover advantage you had wasn't just in the marketplace or the business model or the technology. It was understanding and listening to the consumer. So the consumer voice for us very much how it operates is that, that lighthouse in the dark telling us what they're looking for. And what they fed back in their top three was they're looking for quality, they're looking for design aesthetic, and they're looking for fun and entertainment. And the fun and entertainment piece was that this, you know, this sat above value for money, heritage, status, self-expression, a number of different factors, which is very much why... I sort of referenced that long and the short. It wasn't just an obsession with the bottom of the funnel or, or the sale or commodifying the products. It was about how do we start a theme of luxury new retail, which is one of experience, not just functional transaction. And, and that was something that we had in play that we were seeing. And I think what sort of then sat behind that is the you know the challenges that we faced into is that uh, you know one of the biggest challenges we had was global demand was was fluctuating like crazy. Though as a global business, it was also operating independently of its own circumstances in locales. So a locale that we had or a country had to be treated in isolation rather than uh, global or clustering approaches that we'd had previously. We had to understand how the sales funnel was operating within those countries with the play of the long as well as the short. You know, a lot of people within our industry look upon luxury fashion especially as heavily uh, emotionally charged and aspiration inspiration. So it's not just about a need that consumers have. You have to have that experience in the core because it's not just about the sale or the commodifying of the product. It's the brand that's built around it. So that sort of laser focus we had on the long and the short was underpinned by a principle that we bought in, which was a concept of focus on less to achieve more. And that became our mantra. It was almost like ruthlessly via repetition and, and application for where we were focusing. And that focus on less to achieve more was then in, underpinned by two key pillars. We, we had our audiences, which was around identification, measurement, personalization. We then had capital allocation, which was uh, probably much more familiar and comfortable to my world, which is underpinned by uh, an enormous amount of data around attribution and incrementality. 
And our normal rhythms of business were, were driven by this. Our responses to other business functions were driven by it also. Everything carried through the same process. You know, we had a clear diagnosis, objectives, understanding of the strategy through to the core of the teams. And it also led to that sort of freedom for people, comfortable to say no and push back, that we're on a journey. It's the long, it's the short. We're building the brand, we're driving the sales. There was a, a vacuum that was left in the market of so many businesses pulled back on their brand strategy and their brand investments as people tend to do. But we were adamant that it was the right thing to do. So our focus continuously stayed the line about how do we position ourselves within the market for that long-term positioning, but how do we drive the sales in the now with what was being presented? That sounds, I mean, it all sounds like almost like dangerously like common sense. I mean, what you've got there is a is a classic strategic led uh, uh, marketing plan uh, and indeed business plan. Gareth, I'll just come back to you on uh, on this question of long and short. I mean, you're working for a, a company that's obviously laser focused on achieving profitability. You, you delivered a positive a bit uh, last year. Was it a difficult job to convince uh, your bosses that uh, investing in the long term, investing in brand will deliver in the short term as well? No, not really. Um, Let me just touch on something that Adam said, if I may, first, Russell, because this is going to be very cathartic for me because um, he talked about some of the business challenges we've faced into and how we've responded to those. I think the last year has also been about some personal challenges as well. So, Adam and I both joined Farfetch in lockdown and I started on the 9th of March, Monday 9th of March of 2020. I was in the office on day one and then we were thrown out at 11 o'clock on day two and I've really not been back. And that's the case for many, many, many people. And I think that maybe this isn't really a marketing theme, but I think it's definitely a personal theme that I've been thinking about intently. But, you know, I've had I've had innumerable blue jeans calls and zoom calls and team calls and um, talked with dozens and dozens of people but what I've not been able to do is as a new starter in lockdown is create friendships and friendships at work and so I found it tough and I think in the job that we do um, you know our job is um, a creative one and I think I'm very much of the opinion that creativity is sparked by interaction and that is often sort of physical interaction and intellectual friction and you get those through you get that through sort of those serendipitous bumps in corridors and coffee conversations and don't get me wrong there's lots and lots of benefits with remote working um, not least that I've been able to watch Breaking Bad during my lunchtime which I've never been able to do previously but I do think that those those sort of casual interactions are really, really important. And I've definitely missed those over the last 14 months. So let's go from my personal travails to profit. Um, so I think two, two thoughts, Russell, and, and they come from provocations by Jose, our founder and chairman. And two things that he said recently. One is that Farfetch is a bigger business than we are a brand. And the second one is that um, we need to be thinking about how consumers will shop luxury fashion 
in five to ten years' time, and we need to be planning today how we respond to that. And I think I think the sort of combination of both of those convinced us that we need to tell stories as much as we do drive performance at a sort of transactional level at the bottom of that sort of simplistic linear funnel. And I think our strive for profit through our demand generation spend almost released the opportunity for us to invest in brands at the top. And I think where we've got more sensitive is our demand generation spend. So what we do with Google, for instance, in search or in display or in YouTube is not just about scaling the top line and not just singularly focusing on growth, but it's about how do we drive sustainable, profitable, long-term growth. And it's a little Orwellian in the sense of we talk about GTV. So GTV is a far-fetched acronym, which is essentially, think of it as a source of transaction value. So GTV is created equal, but some is just a little bit more equal than the rest. And so for us, some transactions are more profitable than others. You know, different products of different profit, different customer groups and constituencies have predicted different profit levels and LTVs. And so what we're doing now which is a huge transformational pivot for us, is all of our real-time bidding, especially with Google, is now not just scaling top-line GTV, but it's factoring in at point of bid a view on the profit of that transaction or the future profit of that customer. And so that's been a big change that we've been able to instigate. Actually, the, the, the bidding to profit globally with Google went live two weeks ago. But that's taken a lot of testing and experimentation. So we've tested that bidding to profit over the last 10 months with Jessica's help, with Google's help. We've tested, we sort of viewed countries a little bit like testing petri dishes. So we've tested in New Zealand, we've tested in Australia, we've tested in Italy, France, DAC, and then as I mentioned two weeks ago, we've rolled that global bidding out um, in shopping and in text on Google everywhere. And I think that, I refer back to Adam again, that sort of understanding of data, that understanding of audiences, that's helped to enable the elevation of spend to the top of the funnel. Because we are taking a different approach to how we use some of those traditional broad brand channels, and we are plugging more data understanding into that. So what, what I mean by that is that rather than buying TV traditionally, we've invested, over-invested in programmatic TV. We've tested for the first time OTT, for instance, in China. Um, we've um, therefore been able to drop our... 30-second uh, far-fetched TV spots, in inverted commas, into households that we are confident are high net worth and have a sort of propensity for luxury fashion purchases. So we've sort of used data as a glue that dovetails all of our marketing activity across the funnel and importantly links it all together. And I think that's the key distinction that we've done differently over the last 12 months. It's a really interesting distinction uh, that you illustrate there. And if I could bring Adam into the conversation, you've just uh, been referenced a couple of times in Gareth's answer. Uh, in terms of search and the data that you get from 
search. How have you used that to gain insight into changing customer behaviours and how has that informed strategy? So first of all, uh, you know, as Gareth mentioned, uh, I've been in the business for about 13, 14 months now. Uh, and my own revelation is still how little I understand of luxury fashion. Though fortunately, you know, we have a, a hybrid of experts who are our curators and our creators that I think Gareth referenced earlier, our boutiques, our stylists, you know, the various people who are the trendsetters of, of what is to come before the consumer ever even hits the, the keyboard or the model hits the catwalk. As well as this, it, there's then an enrichment uh, via the data trends from locales and categories that direct our decision making. The speed and volatility uh, that we were observing uh, was the key revelation in the search side of what was coming through. Then figuring out how do we react? Because it's that sense of not enough data, it's useless. Too much data, how do you apply it? So back to the repetitive point I made earlier about that focus on less to achieve more. It was about understanding what was white noise within the data to what was applicable that was impacting our performance. And as Gareth referenced there, we have the long and the short, we had the brand and the performance. We also had the data and the experts. So there's very much a, a hybrid model for, for what we were bringing together. But if we focus probably a little bit more on that, the search data side, it's not just about the obvious trends. It was a prime example, lots of people have been talking about loungewear across multiple retailers, whether it's fast fashion, whether it's luxury, people want more loungewear driven by not being able to go out. But the reality also behind it is consumers were still interested in purchasing luxury items for themselves and others. From a business sense, we've all been living on video calls now for, for a good proportion of the last 13, 14 months, potentially more. And there's a great focus that people have on homeware as we're making renovations and improvements to our, our video call backdrops as we pay more attention there than our homes. You've then got a demand in shirts, blouses, caps, eyewear, essentially anything above the waist that's in view. We could see how people react in there. You then have data collected, helping to understand and activate. One of the great things we saw from last year, it's not just about the data that's building to, to be prominence, it's the, the surge or the burst in trends in buying behavior. Uh, last year was a great example with Air Jordans, when the last dance biography about Michael Jordan ran on Netflix. From the moment the first program went live with Netflix, the surge global, was like a wave, but because we saw the data coming, we were then able to react very, very quickly, not only to how we merchandise the prominence and the investment, but also to talk to our global boutique partners about the trends that we were seeing to help potentially influence the stock that they were picking and they were putting on the platform. COVID also resulted in, in social activity rocketing around the world from TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, etc. as people wanted to be seen in the latest trends. So Understanding and knowing was key for us. As we're then connecting the search world with the social demand world, this was where you know, the great recent observations we had were actually coming through to what we could see. Now there was, and I forget where the research come from or where this next statement came from from people, is that they were talking about research often shows what consumers want you to think they think. The search world is how they act. And it was really looking at how do we compare and contrast that data to understand how we carried out our merchandising and our performance. But the great extension uh, as a business, and this was part of the question you asked earlier about how did we convince people in the business to operate around the brand as well as the, the performance. You have data and then you have a belief. 
what we were utilizing the search data around was this data was like full funnel, complementing performance, brand storytelling, content creation, taking it beyond just the use in Google and paid search, but also connecting the brand strategy. So in as part of our brand strategy, we have our attributes and our associations that impact in the consumer mindset. What we were able to see is as we were running activations via paid and organic and brand performance, how that was triggering differences in search term association with our brand or around our brand. As Gareth sort of touched upon there, the, the Lesbian A brand uh, share of search tracking is something that we'd bought into quite a while ago, connecting that sense of share of brand search and category to share of market. You know, we were looking at that and it was enabling us to see at a local level and the impact of our activations. As Gareth mentioned earlier, we're a global business, 190 countries selling into. We were being able to look at different parameters of impact, but also getting a read on the market, which competitors were making moves in what markets? When were they making those moves? Was that in the sense of we could see in brand share research, but even some of the, the simpler reports in Google, you know, Google search impression share trends in the market. So we were looking at it to activate our own activity and understand what the customer thought, but also being able to see very early on what our competitors were doing around us and then how we either mitigated or approached those via our own strategies and actions. And Les's work on share of search is uh, is really fascinating. So it's really interesting to hear how you've applied some of that thinking and indeed how search can be used for strategic purposes as much as tactical ones. And really interesting what you were saying about using different data points as well. Data being very little without the application of a bit of human insight and forensic analysis as well. Now, uh, Jess uh, Jessica Crawford has been mentioned so I'm going to bring a hint of the conversation. Uh, welcome. Nice to have you with us, Jessica. Uh, you work for Google as an industry manager. Uh, uh, industry manager, sorry. Uh, tell us uh, what you do and, and what's the nature of your partnership with Farfetch. Yeah. Hi, Russell. Lovely to meet you. So as you mentioned, I'm an industry manager here at Google, which basically means I'm responsible for all of Google's interactions with Farfetch. And that covers everything from, you know, the traditional kind of media investment right through to hardware, software and facilitating interactions with our cloud and technology teams. And I think Farfetch have obviously been on a really significant journey since they launched back in 2008, growing from being a startup to being a publicly listed company that now operates, I think, in 50 countries and represents over a thousand luxury brands and boutiques. And Obviously, over that time, Google's worked very closely with the Farfetch teams to help them drive that growth. We've partnered on some really varied and interesting initiatives over the years, helping them adopt a really world-leading approach to marketing automation, um, identifying and scaling their e-commerce operations in new markets, and more latterly, as Gareth mentioned, starting to help them grow brand awareness through platforms like YouTube. And honestly, I feel really privileged to have worked with Farfetch over the last couple of years. It's an organisation that's so innovative. They're really brave in their approach and it's obviously led by some really smart people. You mentioned brave there, which is a word that is used quite a lot. But I just wondered what your interpretation of it in terms of Farfetch. What is it that's brave about them that particularly appeals as a partner? 
I mean, I think what's really brave about them is that they put innovation at the heart of everything they do. So they always want to be the first to try new products. And they're really keen to test anything that gives them a first mover advantage in a highly competitive market. And I think Gareth mentioned this at the beginning, but maybe underpinning that is the fact that they are both at once a world leading authority on luxury design, but really, truly a cutting edge technology platform. I think actually one of the things that makes them really effective is they've completely embraced the idea of marketing investment as a driver of business growth rather than just being a cost center with a fixed budget. And from a Google perspective, I suppose that's meant that they've started to treat search and shopping almost like a digital shop floor. So hypothetically, if you had a fixed budget, once you'd reached a certain number of clicks or conversions or your budget had run out, you'd suddenly shut up shop. But it may well be that customers who wanted to come to your store are suddenly going to your competitors. And I think instead of therefore setting a fixed budget with Google search and asking us to deliver clicks, Farfetch have actually thought about the problem completely differently. And they've kind of asked how they can leverage Google to maximize their sales um, at a ROI that, that makes sense for their business. And we've actually gone one step further recently, as Gareth mentioned. So starting to layer margin data into those bidding tools, which has allowed a really agile optimization towards customers and sales that are profitable for the business. I champion any organization and brand that uh, uses marketing investment to drive business growth. And, and it's seen that way. It's just a shame that more uh, are not doing that. Uh, so thank you for that. What Last word from you. What would be your advice to brands who are looking to change the mentality of their organizations towards digital generally? Well, I guess I'd probably offer two pieces of advice kind of gleaned from my experience working with Farfetch. Firstly, don't be afraid to test things um, and find a way to organize your teams in a way that makes experimentation not only possible, but easy. I think Farfetch are really brilliant at empowering their teams to experiment with products and new approaches and providing they have a rigorous testing framework and a way to scale successes. Those projects typically get kind of sign off and they're asked to to, to try it and, and run with it. And I think the second thing is to really start talking about digital results in business language rather than in marketing speak. So, you know, rather than focusing on metrics like clicks and conversions, think about how you can demonstrate the impact of digital marketing on things like market share, revenue growth and profitability a great great piece of advice again and one that everybody regardless of what vertical sector uh, should take heed of uh, thank you jessica for your contribution uh, bringing adam and gareth back into the chat uh, adam if i could begin with you gareth mentioned early on uh, how brands grow uh, the work of Ehrenberg bass and uh, in particular professor byron sharp just wanted to get a sense from you what the balance was or what the priority will be moving forward from uh, from Farfetch in terms of acquisition and retention. Obviously, how brands grow talks very much about acquisition as the route to growth. But uh, what would you say will be the balance moving forward? Great question, Russell. It's really good appropriate time because Gareth and I are talking a lot about future strategies at the moment. The real conversation we have, and Jess referenced this before, a lot of people get caught in about econometrics, about attribution. One of the biggest items that we focus on is that sense of incrementality. And it's all of the channels working together collectively rather than breaking down the isolation of one channel independently. So there's different parts you have. You know, my role as a prime example, you know, my, my title might be customer acquisition, but my role is more demand generation. So it's not just about the acquisition of the consumer, it's how do we grow the lifetime value within that consumer and understand what they're looking for. 
And then part of the approach that we have behind it, and uh, I know Gareth referenced this before, is how we treat countries, uh, our locales in isolation. So each individual country operates in its own sense of efficient frontier. So at what point in time does the dollar you spend not bring the appropriate dollar back that you require? So that enables us to figure out, in a sense, we don't just have a, a one global strategy. We have strategies in the locale that operate in the sense that enables it to grow within the realms that it wants to. Now, part of that, which is key, is keeping ourselves honest. And one of the structural changes or structural appropriate uh, structural applications that we had in Farfetch was a central data team. So the data team enable us to move away from that lovely sense of what we often have is we'd all love to mark our own homework, right? We'd all give ourselves A stars every day if we had the opportunity. But because all of our reporting and analysis actually sits in a central data team, nobody marks their own homework. And that keeps us raw and it keeps us honest when we're talking about demand generation, when we're talking uh, about the power of the brand, when we're talking about different areas within our loyalty programs, our loyalty programs, our retention, our push into app significantly in the last 12 months and the importance of push. So there's definitely not one one definitive answer we have as an overall. We're a global business, but we think very locale-centric in our strategy and our application. Thanks for that. I think uh, there is never one answer, isn't it? I suppose the answer is generally it depends. But uh, as long as you're driving uh, towards uh, strategic objectives and indeed business objectives, then there are many, many different ways to get there. Gareth, if I could bring you back in for your take, really, on where the luxury market is now and where it's uh, where it's headed, do you think? Just building what Adam said, there is no silver bullet. There is no panacea. But I think my overly simplistic response would be it's both. So we have to acquire new customers to grow, but we also have to keep our experience and our proposition sticky so that once we've acquired them, we are bringing them back to Farfetch, maybe through a different mix of cheaper channels, but growing their share of wallet and building their frequency. That's the path to profitability for Farfetch. And I I definitely agree with um, Jessica when she says the vernacular you use and how you share the impact of our marketing investments is couched in terms of business performance. And that's what we do day in, day out at Farfetch with all of the other stakeholders in the business. So I think a couple of thoughts. Obviously, it's gone through a big transformation over the last 12 months. But what we're seeing, I don't think are new trends. They were dynamics that were previously in existence that have been turbocharged. And maybe in the luxury fashion category, online penetration was growing, but it was growing prior to 2020 at a glacial pace. And Adam annoyingly uh, nicked the stats that I was going to share if this question came up at the very, very beginning. But I have got one stat, which may be top trumps his, which is that online luxury in China prior to 2020 was just 3%. But in the last year, what we've observed is a three-year pull forward of demand into those online propositions. And that's partly because what we've seen is that Chinese luxury fashion demand has been repatriated. And by that, that, by that sounds like a little bit of a fancy term, but by that I mean that 70% of 
the luxury fashion shopping that Chinese consumers did was when they were traveling the world. And so, you know, when they were in London, they were shopping in the halls of Selfridges and Harvey Nichols and Harrods. When they were in Paris, they were in the department stores. When they were in New York, they were in Neyman Marcus and Hudson's Yards prior to the pandemic. And that's where that demand was satiated for those Chinese consumers. Now all of that's gone back into China. And so uh, we will see a massive explosion of online acceleration in that country, partly because in the tier two and tier three cities where Gen Z especially have a sort of insatiable demand for luxury fashion, the physical luxury infrastructure is underdeveloped. And so we think there's a big opportunity for Farfetch and we made a big announcement in terms of a partnership at the end of last year with Alibaba and Richemont. So we are scaling our presence on Tmall as we speak. So I think for me, Bain synthesise all of this very neatly in two words, and they call it the digital blast. And that sort of encapsulates everything, really. And I think one of the interesting things, and Adam touched on this in terms of the category mix, is that this online digital blast hasn't just been in luxury fashion for the categories you would expect, like clothing and shoes, but it's also for a broader range of verticals and categories, and especially ones at very, very high price points. So I know, Russell, that you love your expensive gear and especially expensive watches. So if you were to go to Brown's in the app today, We've got, in prime real estate on the opening screen, we've got what's called VTO or virtual try-on, where you can try on virtually a customised, pre-owned watch from Mad Paris. People have become much more comfortable, the genie is out the box, as it were, in terms of trading up those online purchases now, and I think that will continue. What we will also see moving forward is a confluence between online shopping and offline shopping. I don't think people wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be an online shopper today. And on Saturday, I'm going to be an offline shopper. They just don't think that way. And what we're thinking about is how do our physical experiences become more personal and digital? And by that, I mean a degree of identification of who those customers are, especially those higher value customers as they walk through the door. And then how do we make the digital experiences more physical? And in the latter, you know, all the funky new stuff that we've sort of alluded to, like augmented reality, VTO, that's a way of enabling that for our customers. And if is anybody is in London and is around Mayfair, we've just opened a new Brown's store in Brook Street, which is the sort of dramatization, I suppose, of what we think the future of luxury retail will look like and feel like in a physical bricks and mortar store. It's a good tip uh, for anybody who wants to see that in action. And it seems to me, with that little bit of crystal ball gazing, a good point to conclude our conversation today. So thank you very much, uh, Gareth, Adam and Jessica. Uh, what I took from uh, the conversation is that Farfetch, yes, digital first brand, but is employing in many ways uh, the more traditional and fundamental marketing and brand strategy basics, but absolutely taking advantage of many of the opportunities that data, 
digital and indeed technology does afford brands. Uh, so good luck with, uh, with everything from this point onwards. Thank you very much, all three of you. And thank you for everybody uh, that listened. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You have been listening to Marketing That Matters from Marketing Week and e-consultancy sponsored by Google with me, Russell Parsons. This podcast was produced by Tim O'Donoghue from Bauer London Creative and edited by Rebecca Sentence. Look out for the next episode in which I'll be talking to Ancestry about how they use search to grow the category of genealogy and reach new audiences. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is sponsored by Google Search. It's where your customers find out what matters to them and where you can find out what matters to your business. To learn more, visit g.co slash think slash search smarter. That's g.co slash think slash search smarter.